Chapter Nine of the Adventures of an Ugly Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Adventures of an Ugly Girl by Elizabeth Burgoyne Corbett. Chapter Nine. How fain are we to turn our backs on that which likes us not? It struck me at the time as a remarkable coincidence that after walking about fifty yards we should come across a droshky, into which we all stepped, being driven away without a word of explanation to the driver, unless a peculiar thrice-repeated nod by Ivan be considered sufficient explanation. It would be useless to pretend that our drive was in every respect a comfortable one. The droshky was, in the first place, so small that we had to sit on each other's knees and it was so shaky that we had to hold on to each other to avoid turning a somersault onto the roadway. But that was not the fault of the droshky. The ill-used vehicle was compelled to do dirty as a sledge in the winter. In the summer the runners were unshiped and laid to rest for a few months, while the clumsy wheels were hauled out of their hiding place and tied to the body of the droshky with ropes. When you take a carriage of this description, and drive it helter-skelter through streets paved with rough round cobblestones, the result cannot be expected to be conducive to comfort. In my case, the miseries of that drive were intensified, as I was already feeling very sick, in consequence of having been rash enough to cap my first cigarette with a second one. But it was all in the interest of patriotism and freedom, and the memory of the sufferings of that day and night has been wiped out by the recollection of their satisfactory ending. We had been driving, as nearly as I can remember, about half an hour, having branched off from the streets into the public park known as Peter the Great's Gardens, when our driver drew his horse up close to the edge of some dark, stagnant water. We were beside the new mole. The last remnant of daylight was now gone, so far as it does go altogether in these latitudes in summer. But we were quite able to see that in the huge basin before us lay hundreds of steamers of various nationalities, in one of which at least we hoped to find a haven of refuge. Seeing us get out of the droshky, several uncouth-looking boatmen, dressed in bright-colored print shirts, immediately importuned us to employ them. After a little preliminary bargaining between them and the droshky driver, the two least villainous-looking boatmen were employed to row our party to an English steamer named the Beacon. A liberal dosur was given to the driver by Ivan. We stepped into the gaudily painted boat, carrying our scanty store of luggage with us. The men bent to their oars, and we were soon skimming the surface of the mole, while the sounds of the droshky's wheels died away in the distance. "'Keep a sharp lookout,' muttered Ivan in English. "'These fiendish boatmen would brain us all and pitch us into the water "'if they thought that by catching us unawares "'they could land a few roubles and a watch or two. "'That sort of thing often happens, "'but none of the villains are ever brought to book. "'They bolt off to their winter quarters "'as soon as they have done a stroke of that sort of business, "'and when they come back in the next boating season "'the whole affair has been forgotten by the officials.' After this, I sat with my eyes glued on the boatmen, anxiously noting what a number of ships we had to pass before we reached the one we wanted, and wildly longing for the time when I could bid an eternal farewell to misery-haunted Russia. I suppose, the beacon being in the inner mole, the men would be rowing half an hour before they reached it. 
To me the time seemed an age, ere we pulled up beside a black-looking steamer, and one of the men shouted, Ahoy! to the watchman on deck. There was a speedy reply to the summons, three or four dark heads popping themselves over the side to have a look at us. There were no questions asked, and it almost seemed to me as if we had been expected, though one could not complain of the preparations for our reception being too elaborate. A rope ladder hung from the ship's side, and for a moment my heart sank within me, when I was told that this was the only means of boarding our ark of safety. Trishel confessed to me afterward that she almost fainted at what seemed to her to be courting certain death, but we were both possessed by an even greater dread than that of falling back into the water, and nerved ourselves to appear as manly and unconcerned as possible, lest our terror should betray how totally unused to our present surroundings we were. As for Madame, she seemed to be endowed with superhuman courage and calmness. In due course this fresh ordeal was over. The boatmen grasped the end of the ladder, which had wooden rungs, in order to steady it, and one by one we sampled its precarious footing, swaying from side to side with the motion of the boat, and sometimes being turned almost with our backs to the steamer before we reached the rail at the top. Here many hands were ready to seize ours, and to help us descend the short ladder which led from the rail to the deck. It is contrary to all custom for a woman to be left to the last to come on board in this fashion, and Ivan, in spite of his assumed transposition into a member of the weaker sex, would fain have seen the supposed German merchant board the ship before him. This, however, would of a certainty have roused the suspicions of the boatman. So Madame was left to give the boatmen their stipulated pay, and to come on board unaided. The boatmen, knowing with what facility seafarers usually mount these hanging ladders, pushed their boat off without further delay, and paid no more attention to the individual whom they left dangling in mid-air. Being thus unceremoniously thrown upon her own resources, Madame exerted herself to secure a more stable footing, and when at last she stood upon the deck, shaking with sudden nervousness, I firmly believed that nothing short of a miracle had saved her from falling into the water. "'Pray come down below at once,' said the voice of a man who had taken an active part in our reception, and who proved to be the captain. "'I began to be afraid that you would not save the tide. It will be high water in an hour, and there is nothing to hinder us from weighing and starting at once. We must pass out when the gates open. You will have to excuse the quarters to which I am compelled to consign you until we are out of Russian jurisdiction.' We may possibly be boarded again by government officials before we are clear of the docks, and you must all be alike invisible and inaudible. So be perfectly still until I come down to you again. You will find some other refugees in the ship. They will help to make you comfortable. Take care. While the captain was talking, he had been leading us through the ship's saloon, thence through the steward's pantry to what he called the lazarette, whence we emerged through a cunningly concealed sliding door, into an apartment that was so narrow that two stout people could barely have passed each other in it, and so dark that the reader may reasonably excuse the momentary panic which overcame me, when, before we had quite comprehended that we were at last at the end of our journey, we were pushed further into the passage-like space. Then the captain hurriedly left us to our own devices, and the door closed with a peculiar click which advertised some patent spring action. We were doubtful what step to take next, and were so imbued with a sense of the deadly danger that would attend any noise on our part, that for a few moments we dared neither move nor speak. It was a great relief when, in a few minutes, the captain returned with a scrap of a candle, warranted to go out in five minutes. Daren't allow more, might be seen, 
he whispered, and then clicked the door after him. We eagerly availed ourselves of the dim light which had been put into Trishel's hand to glance around our temporary prison, which eventually proved to have been contrived by means of double bulkheads, which traversed the ship from side to side, but were only two feet apart from each other. The reason for this economy of space will be obvious when it is remembered that the object of the shipbuilders had been the provision of a secret chamber of which the existence was not to be even suspected by those not in the secret. The long, narrow passage thus obtained was furnished with rugs and cushions and such other means of comfort as the exigencies of space and practicability allowed. But we did not dwell long upon the view of our place of refuge, for we speedily caught sight of that which filled us with the liveliest joy. We had been enjoined to keep silent. Surely it would have been a superhuman task to refrain from a few exclamations of thankfulness at the surprise in store for us. For here were the Prince and Princess Michaelow, Madame's daughter Fayo, and a fourth person whom we soon knew to be none other than Victor Carniac, my mistress's newly wedded husband. Surely tears and sobs and smiles and ejaculations of gratitude were never more rapturously blended than in the small stuffy hole in which we were all reunited. But prudence soon reasserted itself, and ten minutes later a Russian spy might have listened at the door without hearing a sound from within. Yet a little while longer, and we could hear the vibration of the screw. We had entered upon another phase of our adventurous journey. Excitement and danger are prone to make one forget or ignore bodily claims which weigh very seriously with us at other times. But when these unwanted stimulants are withdrawn, nature is apt to take a little revenge for the temporary slight put upon her. Thus, it is not surprising that the happy reunion of friends and relatives being accomplished, the quartet of newest arrivals should become conscious of extreme fatigue and of the need of some kind of refreshment. The latter was soon forthcoming. A larder at one end of the room we were in was stocked with a liberal supply of eatables and drinkables, and there were plenty of willing hands to serve us with a meal to which some at least of us did full justice. And now, Miss Dora, said Trishel, the best we can do is to lie down and sleep for a while. Everybody else has much to talk over with friends, and we shall not be missed. It was quite true. We could, for a time at least, be easily, perhaps gladly spared. While traveling and sharing mutual dangers, we had all seemed tolerably equal in our claims upon each other. The situation was altered now. Trishel was kindly and warmly welcomed, but her welcome was the one which generous employers would naturally extend to a faithful servant. I was treated in every respect as an equal, but was still conscious of the fact that I was not actually one of the family, as seemed to be the case with Ivan. That Madame should appear all in all to her husband and child was natural, but that Ivan, whom I had admired while I thought him Madame's very humble assistant, should turn out to be none other than Count Sergius Volkovsky, the cousin and bosom friend of Prince Michaelo, was a great surprise to me. They all had much to talk about, or rather, to whisper about, for great caution was necessary, and I felt no compunction in following Trishel's advice. But it was long before I could sleep, for the motion of the vessel combined with the unpleasant vibration of the screw, which seemed to be almost under me, soon made me feel sick again, and I underwent a period of intense but silent misery, too ill to lift my head, but not too ill to feel a fresh accession of terror every time the motion of the ship ceased. I did not know then that the coming out of dock of a merchant steamer is a tedious business which involves many fresh starts and stoppages, if collisions with key walls or ships are to be avoided. 
had i been aware of this fact i should not have kept fancying that the beacon had been detained by russian government officials and that pursuers were about to discover our hiding place when at last sleep did visit me it performed its work so effectually that on waking i had no trace of fatigue or illness left my cushions were at one end of our curious room which was no wider than an ordinary bunk and would hardly have permitted any one to pass me without disturbing me as it was i had slept uninterruptedly for hours and was quite refreshed when i opened my eyes and saw that a lamp was casting its brightening rays around me trishel stood by my bedside if such i can call it smiling with joy and holding in her hand a cup of fragrant coffee i have brought you some coffee and a ham sandwich she said you may get up as soon as you like now and come on deck when you have had some breakfast we have left russia behind us and have got rid of the russian pilot the captain says there is no more fear of pursuit this was joyful news indeed and i lost no time in preparing myself to go on deck if you will follow me miss said trishel i will show you the berth that is to be yours till the end of the voyage you will be able to wash and dress comfortably in it even the little den to which i promptly betook myself was of somewhat circumscribed area but it was as a very paradise to me by reason of the delightful feeling of security which i felt as soon as i stepped into it i soon discarded the raiment which had served me so well and at once lost myself in the delight of making myself more suitably presentable every necessity seemed to have been foreseen and provided against and i found an ample stock of clothing placed at my disposal I was very glad that I no longer needed to masquerade in boys' attire, and took especial delight in robing myself in a pretty pink morning gown Trishel had brought in for me. My hair afforded me some trouble, though. If I had been an ugly girl before, what must I be now, I thought. My little berth was lighted by a swing lamp fixed to a bracket in the bulkhead. There was also a mirror hanging near the bulk but i could not judge very well of my appearance and it was with a sense of regret that the thought that my cropped hair negatived the advantages of my pretty dress that i eventually followed trishel into more airy and lightsome regions i found the ship's cabin well occupied madame and her husband together with the prince and princess michaelo being deep in consultation concerning future arrangements so i did not encroach long upon their time but after exchanging pleasant greetings with them all went on deck here Feo was having a merry time with Count Sergius Volkovsky. I am not sure that I wasn't sorry to find that the latter was a grand sort of an individual after all. I would much rather have been able to call him Ivan, especially as he looked so very handsome, now that he was dressed in a manner befitting his station, while I felt painfully conscious that I must be looking a bigger fright than ever. "'Oh, Dora, I am glad you have come up at last,' exclaimed Feo, bounding affectionately toward me they would not let me wake you when the captain first came to tell us it was safe enough for us now isn't the sea pretty and isn't this a jolly ship and isn't everybody in it jolly and ho isn't sergius jollier than anything i have been told since that if my lips did not endorse the latter sentiment my eyes did but i must warn the reader that the individual who made the statement is not to be trusted with regard to anything he may say about me for he is unduly prejudiced in my favor the latter fact when it was first brought home to me came upon me as a huge surprise i still feel surprised when i think of it but am better accustomed to it by this time there was much to explain and to talk over concerning our recent flight and while feo rambled hither and thither in thorough enjoyment of the situation i listened to the explanation of much that had seemed inexplicable to me 
the whole party with which i had become so closely associated was of nihilistic proclivities and had been spending much energy and a great deal of money in facilitating the escape from russia of such members of their fraternity as from time to time fell under the ban of suspicion it had however of late struck them that the limit of their own safety had been spanned and their flight had not been nearly so hasty and unpremeditated as it had seemed to me though madame carniac as i must now call my employer had been reluctant to recognize her own extreme peril there was some special mission to perform for which a considerable sum of money was still needed madame could only contribute her quota after handing in her report and receiving the check with which the government rewarded her imaginary services once a month she resolved that once more and only once more she would run the risk of a return to st petersburg she achieved her purpose but narrowly escaped falling a victim to her patriotic zeal prince michaelo less sanguine than she had foreseen her danger had provided for her escape his cousin having considered it by no means derogatory to his dignity to assume the role of a coachman for the nonce the princess michaelo or nina as she has since asked me to call her had taken no part in nihilistic plans and consultations and had been as genuinely surprised at the sudden necessity for the flight to england as i had been but was by no means downhearted at the prospect of having to spend the rest of her life in her own country as for mr victor carniac he had deemed it wisest to avoid the river steamer and had not reached the beacon much sooner than we had done ourselves needless to say the visit of the beacon to kronstadt was not the result of merely mercantile speculation but of a thoroughly systematized plan of campaign by which refugees in the secret had their escape from russia facilitated the vessel usually made four trips between england and kronstadt in the season taking coals out from the tyne and returning with a mixed cargo of wheat timber and refugees london being the discharging port the afterhold was docked of two feet of its legitimate length this space being utilized for the hiding place in which we had spent our first night on board i used to imagine myself an ardent lover of nature during this voyage i sometimes wondered if i had turned goth or vandal for I no longer took the all-absorbing delight in my surroundings that had hitherto accompanied me when among fresh and unconventional scenery. The ever-changing panorama of views of first one country and then another, alternated by the numerous islands which are dotted about the Baltic, would have aroused my enthusiasm at any other time. That they did not do so on this occasion must be laid to Count Sergius Volkovsky's charge. He was so clever and so brilliant that when talking to him I naturally overlooked the unobtrusive claims of scenery. I might possibly see a great deal more of the world in time to come, I thought, but I should never have such a wonderful traveling companion again. Therefore it would have been foolish to refuse the opportunities which were mine of enjoying his society. Certainly these opportunities seemed to last almost all day, for strangely enough Count Volkovsky never seemed to tire of my company. I knew that things would be very different when we reached London, and he was introduced to cleverer and better-looking girls. Meanwhile, I felt happy in the present, and tried to banish the oft-recurring vision of my own probable future of lonely lovelessness. Alas, the time sped all too quickly for me, though by everyone else on board, our arrival in London was hailed with unmixed relief. The Prince and Princess Michaelo went to the Hotel Metropole until they could complete their arrangements for residing in a home of their own furnishing. Their cousin, Sergius, went with them for a time. Mr. and Mrs. Carniac, Fayo, myself, and Trishel were soon located in Kensington again, being fortunate in securing a very nicely furnished house pro tem. 
I was not sure that Madame's financial position was such now as warranted my remaining with her, but I hardly knew how to introduce the question of my departure. It relieved my embarrassment considerably when Madame, having probably partially gauged my feelings, spoke to me one morning about Fayot's future. I find, she said, that Fayot shows considerable facility for learning languages. She is so young yet that she may safely postpone a good many of the ordinary branches of her education, and she is getting on so well with her French and German that I hope you will not leave us for some time. To lose you would be a serious break in my child's education, and I hope you know how anxious I am to retain your companionship, especially as Victor has much traveling to do before his financial affairs are all satisfactorily arranged. Surely he is not going to Russia again, I exclaimed. No, not to Russia, but to South America. He has money invested in shares there and is also concerned in some California speculations. For some time he has foreseen that it would be as well to invest his capital out of Russia. But his agents have been rather lax, and he is going to inspect both nitrate beds and gold mines, in order that he may realize his legitimate profit on them. This will take him many months, and we want you to promise that you will stay with me at least until he comes back. Both Feo and I need you. Stay with them, as if it were a favor on my part, too. Put in that way, the request certainly surprised me. Stay with you, I said gratefully. I shall only be too happy to do so. Where else have I to go, since my own father declines to welcome me? Madame had a knack of being tantalizingly mysterious at times, and I puzzled my head for some time to unravel the meaning of the curious smile with which she greeted my last question. But my immediate future was now arranged for, at all events, and the least I could do in return for Madame's kindness was to set about my duties, light as they were, with all my heart and all my soul. Meanwhile, I felt anxious to learn how things fared with Lady Elizabeth. At times, when I remembered the mysterious nature of the illness from which she was suffering when I last saw her, I almost feared the worst. Then my naturally hopeful temper reasserted itself, and I reflected that she would now in all probability be quickly recovering her normal strength in the bracing air of Morby, whither my family would be sure to have returned ere this. And Jerry, dear little Jerry, how ardently I longed to see him. He would be spending his holidays at home now, and I wondered if he had made such progress with his French, as he seemed to anticipate before he left us. What a long time it seemed since father and I, both with such light hearts, had seen him leave our little station in the care of the tutor. And what a round of events had taken place since then. I had suffered much, felt years older, although the last few weeks seemed to have softened my regrets for the past in a wonderful degree. Bell, too. Somehow, I was now able to think of her without feeling such anger as had formerly haunted me, though I can never pretend to a return of loving, sisterly interest in her. That was dead forever, but so also was my former determination to make her suffer as keenly as I had been made to suffer. Such a determination I now looked upon as unchristian and unnatural, since the object of my vengeance was my own mother's daughter. Better let sleeping dogs lie, I thought, since any revelations concerning the death of the late Earl of Greatlands, if they tended to substantiate my idea of woeful culpability on the part of Belle and her fiancé, would be productive of great grief to many others. Feeling anxious and unsettled, and being doubtful of the wisdom of writing home to ask for news of my people, lest my father should compel me to give up my present life of honorable independence and freedom from petty insults, I took advantage of a spare hour or two shortly after my return to London, and went to the house my father had rented in town. It was tenantless. 
I had not intended really going in, but I believe I should not have been able to resist trying to see Lady Elizabeth if she had still been living here, and I felt more disappointed than I could have believed possible, since I had not really expected to see her. To go to Morby was out of the question just now, I thought, as I did not wish to trespass upon Madame's good nature yet a while to the extent of neglecting my duties for a couple of days. I was walking through the park on my way home again, revolving the propriety of writing to ask Mrs. Garth to let me have all the news about my people, when I accidentally jostled against someone else who was evidently as preoccupied as I was. Hastily looking up with an ejaculation of apology, I saw, looking at me with a face upon which was pictured the greatest surprise, an elderly man, in whom I recognized none other than Dennis Marvel, the former valet of my dear old Earl. "'Oh, miss,' he said eagerly, "'I am glad to see you, for I have that on my mind which will drive me mad if I keep it to myself, but which I dare tell to nobody but you. I am fairly pulled to pieces with the misery of the thing. One minute something inside me says, "'Tell all you know, and let justice be done. Let not the guilty flourish while the innocent are cast aside. The next minute it seems as if the wickedest thing I could do was to make more trouble for them that has had enough already.' Oh, miss, you will be able to help me decide what should be done. Though you had such bitter enemies, you won't let hatred of them lead you to be cruel to their belongings, and oh, how it will ease my mind to tell you everything. I have been to the house to inquire for you, but the servants could not tell me anything about you, except that they thought there had been a quarrel, and that Mr. Courtney had turned you out, you who had been robbed of wealth and title. It made my blood boil to hear it, but of course I could not say what I thought, and I never hoped to come across your ladyship that was to have been like this. So lucky, after all. I had let the old man talk on so long without interruption, for my inward dismay had literally bereft me of the power of speech for a time. I did not even try to pretend to myself that I misunderstood Marvel's meaning, or that I did not know exactly to what event he was alluding. At last the mystery of the Earl's death was going to be cleared up for me. My suspicions were to become proved facts, and upon my shoulders was to fall the onus of judging and sentencing the guilty. It is small wonder that I felt the blood leave my face, that my limbs trembled under me, and that I was glad to avail myself of the support of the seat near which I had come into collision with Marvel. I motioned to him to sit down also, hastily looking round, lest possible prying ears should be at hand to surprise and proclaim to the world the secret of which my companion was about to disburden himself. I see that you fully understand my meaning, he said, and I don't need to beat about the bush much, for I always thought that you suspected foul play, by the way you looked at your sister and the young earl. Well, miss, it's quite true. They made away with my poor master, for they had sworn that you shouldn't get married to him, and lord it over them at the castle. Besides, they pretended to think the earl must be in his dotage, and no longer fit to be the head of the family, when he could seriously think of choosing. Well, miss, not to offend you, I hope but they said he had picked the ugliest girl he could find, and that there was no telling what crazy thing he would do next, try to cut off the entail or something of the sort. So they laid their plans to stop the wedding, and I swear it is true, they murdered my poor old master. Stop, Marvel, I said now, having at last recovered the power of speech. The accusations you make are too terrible to be believed lightly. It is easy to say what your suspicions dictate, but you have no proofs of what you say, and I will not hear anything more. I loved the old earl for his goodness to me, a neglected, unattractive girl, whom very few people cared for. The present earl is his son, and the brother of my dear stepmother. His fiancée is my sister, and thus both, though actually my enemies, have claims upon my forbearance. 
Marvel, I dare not believe them guilty. I will not believe them guilty. You shall tell me no more. You must hear all I have got to say now, Miss Dora, returned Marvel firmly. I tell you I must open my mind to somebody, and I reckon you are the safest. Another thing, I have to be back soon, so would like to get on with my story. Are you still with the present Earl? Yes, that's how I know so much about his black secret, and my knowing the secret is the reason why I stop on with him, for he is not very easy to put up with nowadays. But you see, I have lived all my life in the family, and so did my father and mother before me, so I feel as if the family's trouble and disgrace were mine too, and I would rather keep on as I am than let another man step into my shoes. For he would soon be at the bottom of the family mystery, and then what would become of us all? What, indeed? The result was too dreadful to contemplate, and I no longer questioned either Marvel's veracity or the purity of his motives. The present Earl, he went on, was always inclined to drink a bit, but since his father's death he has really gone on awful. Every week has got worse, and I have had to put him to bed drunk every night for this last month. This couldn't help having a serious effect on him, and last week he had a very bad attack of delirium tremens, in which his own ravings showed the whole business up as plain as daylight. I was glad he was pretty quiet when the doctor was there, as he would have been one too many in the secret. The paper said that he was laid up with an attack of pleurisy, but I knew better, and it does not pay a fashionable doctor to split about his patients. Toward the end of the week the Earl got over his attack of the blues, and then I had a serious talk with him. "'My lord,' said I, "'you must drink no more.' "'And why not?' he asked, looking at me as if he thought I had left my senses somewhere else. "'Because,' I said, looking him straight in the face, "'dead men tell no tales, but drink makes people tell things that it's safer nobody else should know. "'I'll tell you what the drink has made you do and say, and then you can judge whether it's safe for you to drink any more or not.' "'Then I described how he had gone on when unconscious of what he was doing.' He had fancied every now and then that his father's ghost was standing before him with outstretched finger and threatening visage. For God's sake, he would scream, take it away. It is drawing me down to hell. Let me go. Take her. She prompted me to do it. It was her crime. I would not have thought of it, but for her. I gave him the poison, but it was Belle who bought it. She swore that she would use it on her sister, if I failed with the poor old man, who deserved nothing but good at my hands. Why didn't I let her poison the girl? I shouldn't have had this to face then. Be gone. At this he jumped out of bed as if he meant to attack somebody. But he just fell all of a heap on the floor and was pretty easily managed until the next paroxysm came on, which was in another hour or two. Now you can guess what sort of an effect my talk had upon my master. He went almost beside himself with terror, and was for offering me no end of things to bribe me to keep his secret. But I am not one of those human vultures who grow fat on the crimes and miseries of others, and I wouldn't touch a farthing from the Earl except in the way of my earnings, as usual. It would burn my fingers if I did. No, I said, Dennis Marvel knows his duty to the family too well to betray it. Your lordship has the matter in your own hands. Keep off the drink, keep your mouth shut, and all's safe. Since then he hasn't tasted a drop of anything that could make him drunk. But he has awful nights all the same. He wasn't really meant for a villain. And saving your presence, Miss Dora, if that she-devil, your sister, hadn't got hold of him, things would have been all right, and we should all have been as happy as we used to be before we knew her. And now, Miss Dora, what would you advise me to do? Do you blame me for what I have done? It would kill Lady Elizabeth and disgrace the family forever if we didn't keep the secret, so it cannot be wicked to shield the guilty. Thus appealed to by Marvel, I replied firmly. 
we must shield the guilty marvel in order to protect the innocent you wouldn't like to have lady elizabeth's death on your conscience would you god forbid then you and i faithful friend must breathe a word of this business to no one and we must do all we can to prevent others from learning the terrible secret it is a heavy burden you have put upon my shoulders marvel i can only hope your burden has been eased a little in the telling and that you will not think it necessary to share it with any one else i give you my bible oath miss dora that not a living soul shall hear me speak of this thing but you the weight of the secret was choking me but as you say a burden shared by somebody else of like mind is half rolled away and yet you have something else to tell me what do you mean by saying that the earl has bad nights is he still likely to betray himself i think not for when awake he knows quite well what he is saying but his conscience is tormenting him to his doom he cannot live long and suffer as he is doing sleep refuses to visit him except when he takes an opiate and every night the dose has to be made bigger or it has no effect a fine state of mind for a man to be in who is going to be married next month next month yes on the fifteenth in london no lady elizabeth is too ill to stand much fuss and excitement so the wedding is to be as quiet as possible and is to take place at morby church the reverend mr garth officiating it is just as well for everybody yes it is just as well and now do you know marvel i feel ill with the shock of all you have told me and marvel at once jumped up and offered to fetch a cab for me i gladly accepted his offer and reached home half an hour later while marvel returned to his master's town-house to fulfil those duties which his long attachment to the greatlands family and his identification of his own honour with that of his employers alone made it possible for him to continue End of chapter nine